In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So thank God we're back again to the Bible studies after a few weeks off. Um, we have been studying uh, in the book of Romans. We finished the first nine chapters in the book of Romans. Um, just as a kind of quick summary as to what we have covered. Um, the main theme of the book is that St. Paul is writing to um, the Christians that are in Rome. And the Christians in Rome are made up of two groups. There is the group of the Gentiles and there's the group of the Jews. Um, and they're kind of at odds with one another. Um, the Jews, um, as we have seen in the past in some other of the books that we've studied, um, the Jews are, are very much focused on their identity as being the children of Abraham, um, believing that they have salvation through the selection that God has chosen them from the Old Testament, through um, the law of Moses, through the um, rite of circumcision. Um, and so they place high emphasis on this, and so they are critical of the Gentiles coming to Christianity without having to also participate in these things like these rituals of the Old Testament, um, including circumcision. So St. Paul focuses a great deal of time um, focusing on telling the Jews that they were unable to fulfill the law, that salvation is not through the law, that they are in, the, in need of the grace um, of God and the forgiveness of sins that came through the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation just as much as the Gentiles. So he's trying to kind of set their mind right to the right understanding of that we are in the need of the grace of God for salvation. This will also help them to accept the Gentiles um, as well. But he also focuses on the Gentiles, and we'll see that today as well, um, essentially saying that, you know, do not be prideful because some of the, the Gentiles were critical of the Jews because the Jews rejected Christ, right? Um, and they're the ones who crucified him. So St. Paul also addresses the Gentiles, and he says to them not to be um, prideful or think to yourself also better than the Jews, because the Jews actually were the ones who paved the way for the salvation of the entire world. That They did have a very important role throughout all of history, and so also we should um, appreciate that. So that's kind of the, some of the main themes that we've been speaking about in the book of Romans. Um, specifically, last time in chapter 9, um, St. Paul, because he you know, had spent such a great deal of time kind of addressing the Jews in a critical way, um, in chapter 9, he like, confirms to the Jews that they are loved by God, they were chosen by God in the Old Testament, they are the special people of God that God had chosen. But again, this was not because of their own righteousness or their good works, but because of the goodness of God. So just as they are unworthy of salvation and that their status is because of God's goodness and his selection, so also if God now is choosing the Gentiles for salvation, the Jews should not grumble against this because they received this same grace when God chose them. So God willing, today we're going to study chapters 10 and 11. Hopefully we're able to get through both chapters today. So he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So the Jews were zealous, right? They were zealous for God. 
And many of them were very meticulous in the following of the law, in all of the, the ritual rites of the, uh, th that were given to them through Moses. But they didn't have a knowledge or understanding of the truth, the truth that had been revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they had this ignorance, they were zealous in worship, but they were not worshiping God in the right way. They were not worshiping God and following God in the way that actually he was calling them to follow and worship. So this right way of worship was something that God is the one who gave to the people and said to the people, worship me this way. You know, if you look in the Old Testament, all the details of the construction of the tabernacle, of the institution of the feasts and the fasts and all the practices and the circumcision and everything about the specifics of the law, God gave to them and said, follow me this way, worship me this way. Okay, so even though sometimes maybe we have a zeal for God, um, but we also have to understand how is it that God asked us to worship? How, how is it that God asked us to follow him, to obey him? Because in that way, this is, this is the way that we are pleasing to God, right? It is by following through with what, what God asked us to do. Kind of an example of this um, we see uh, in the book of Leviticus. So the sons of Aaron, their names were Nadab and Abihu, and they were priests. And their, the, the, the fire that they were supposed to offer in, in the altar um, was supposed to come from the altar. So it was like this perpetual burning fire that they would take from it and offer, uh, 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 offer incense from this fire. These two uh, priests, however, it says about them that they offered a profane fire. Okay, so we see here this verse in Leviticus 10. Um, it says, then, uh, I'm sorry. Then, uh, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So you have, it's like these two priests are offering incense, right? They're offering incense. They're offering incense in the tabernacle, but they use this profane fire, right? And there's different um, interpretations of what that is. It's possible that they were using their own fire that came from another source, or they were using coals that came from another source instead of the fire that came from the altar. But the idea is, is that they were making an offering, but this offering was rejected. You know, we see this also in, in you know, the story of Cain. Cain made an offering to God, just as Abel did, but the offering of Cain was rejected. So sometimes we have this mentality that as long as I'm offering something out of zeal, then that means it must be accepted. But actually, we see examples where, where it is not. And here God is saying, what you have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is what St. Paul is saying. You have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So in order for us to be true worshipers of God, to truly worship God in the right way, we have to worship him with zeal and with knowledge. Okay, because... The knowledge is what directs our zeal to the right path, the right approach, so that we can offer to him and sacrifice to him and worship him the way that he wants. So we can th kind of think of like this uh, matrix of zeal and knowledge. You can think of maybe someone who has no zeal and no knowledge, 
Okay, this is a person who is apathetic, who's carnal, doesn't care about God at all, doesn't care about worshiping God and completely living for themselves. They have no zeal and no knowledge. They're completely ignorant. Okay, you could think of someone who has zeal but no knowledge, which is what St. Paul is speaking about here. These are people who are maybe misguided. Maybe they're fanatical because they are following a system of their own creation. That's what happens when someone has zeal without knowledge. The knowledge that they have is a knowledge that they have invented, not the knowledge that had been revealed to them by God, but a knowledge of, uh, of their own invention. So we come up with a way and we say, oh, we, we want to worship God this specific way. We want to you know, do this specific thing, even though maybe this is completely against what God is actually asking them to do. Okay, like, like this example of Nadab and Abihu and others who offer to God, but offer to him in a way contrary to what he was desiring. Yes. So, uh, when you have when you have situations like this, when um, you know a, a certain set of leaders uh, may lead a whole congregation away, right? Uh, as with the case of the Jews or any other such schismatic organization since the beginning of the church. Well, not the beginning of the church, but since the first century, let's say. Um, when you have a situation like that, um, what about the people who have followed them? Some of them may not have thought that so through, uh, so, so thoroughly, right? Um, the the leaders, on the other hand, they knew what they were doing, right? Um, and I, like, I, I could imagine what becoming a heretic is like. I mean, I think about that all the time. What if I became one, right? Um, but then the then the the people who followed them. Um, what about them? Like, uh, are they at fault? Like, uh, maybe they didn't know any better, you know? So definitely the people who are the perpetuators of the wrong practice are the ones who will be judged the harshest, right? This is even why in, in scriptures it says, do not let, you know, do not let many desire to have the, the role of a teacher because the teachers will be judged more harshly than those who are this, the followers, okay? But it doesn't mean that the followers are exempt either because we are called to worship a god that we know right and to learn about this god and of course it it is um much more difficult when let's say you grew up in or have been highly influenced by people who are false prophets for instance but we are called to read the scripture this is why god gave us all the scripture right like he didn't just give the scripture to a select few people, and then it is through them that we, you know, know the truth. No, actually, he gave us all the scripture. So when we all read the scripture and we try to understand it, we can ask questions and we can determine, like, is is what I, is the interpretation that I'm being given? Is there any basis for it? Is there any backing to it? Um, like, there there isn't. You know, maybe there isn't. So so at that point, it's up to us to who are asking those questions to then seek seeking the truth. Right. And of course, it's a process. Right. And it's not it's not something that suddenly, you know, someone might, you know, realize it. But that's one of the things that we are so blessed to be in orthodoxy, which teaches us the truth and why we should feel a great burden and obligation to share that truth with others who maybe haven't had that benefit because it is very misleading. But it goes to also what is my goal of religious worship? Right. Nowadays, the concept of religion is focused very much on the self. 
and it's to a large extent become like a therapy or kind of how do I feel about the universe or you know like what makes me feel the best about myself or feel the most fulfilled or feel you know it's very much self-focused and so because it's very much self-focused the idea of zeal without knowledge is rampant right because I'm everyone is coming up with their own theology even among Christians right like the people who are Christians but you know there's certain parts of the Bible they disagree with or they don't understand so they ignore it right and they they live with everything else and they come up with maybe a skewed or imbalanced view of the Christian faith and Christian practice so so it's important for us it's important for everyone who is saying you know when we speak about religion we're talking about what is the truth and I want to learn the truth conform myself to the truth again so that I have this knowledge and not just zeal right so so again, I say if someone has no zeal and no knowledge, they're like apathetic and they're carnal and they're ignorant. If someone has zeal without knowledge, then they're misguided, right? Maybe they're very passionate, but they're passionate about the wrong thing or they're not applying that passion in a healthy and right way. So again, they're leading themselves down a destructive path and a, a, and a, and a path of man-made religion, right? It's just kind of our own invention. We decide for ourselves what our God is, right? Someone who has zeal but no knowledge. Someone who has no zeal but has knowledge, this is what we would consider to be a person who is a hypocrite, right? Someone who knows the truth and knows everything about it but has no practice, does not put it into practice in any way. Like this is be knowledge with no zeal. And then finally, when you have both, which is what St. Paul is calling the people to, to have both zeal and knowledge, right? This, this results in godliness, right? Righteousness, holiness, because we, we have a passion for God and we worship him according to the way and understanding who he is truly as he has revealed himself to us. So we should move away from this idea of the watered-down faith, where we try to take Christianity and distill it down to the simplest terms and say all Christianity is is loving God and loving people, right? Because, yes, maybe on a, on a very theoretical high level, we can say, yes, that's the core of maybe our faith. But a lot of times when people say that, they're saying, well, you know what, because I, I don't, I really, I want to disregard and not really pay heed or attention to so many of the things that God actually told us to do, the specifics, the details, the, the things that he cares about, that he made a point to discuss with us, to command us, right? Again, I always go back to the Old Testament. How detailed was God in every dimension of the tabernacle of everything that he told the people to do? It means that those dimensions mattered. Right. Like like to him, he could have just said, build a building. He could have said, you know, make some vestments, you know, like in a, in a, in a or, or even use certain materials to make a vestment. But he went to every little min minute detail and describing it. So so God reveals. And so we should take that revelation and work with it and not try to worship God with zeal, but without knowledge. It can be destructive. Also, it can be very misleading because. We look at someone who has zeal and we're like, this is great. You know, this person has zeal. Like, like we encourage that person to have zeal because, you know, a lot of times people don't have zeal and they're just apathetic. So we take someone who has zeal and we, we want to encourage that. But while we're encouraging that, we have to make sure that zeal is, is directed in the right path and not just praising zeal for the sake of zeal, right? Like, again, like there are people who have zeal that are very fanatical fundamentalists, really worshiping a God of their own creation, because they have, you know, bringing these ideas um, and, and, and not really, like, basing their understanding of God on the scripture 
or on what the church teaches about him. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This verse. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So the, the Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Meaning the, the culmination, the fulfillment of all of the law is in Christ. Okay? So righteousness comes from Christ and abiding in him not through the law itself. Okay? The man who does these things shall live by them. Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law. It is the one who practices, and the one who practices it how? In Christ, because as we said, no human being has the ability to fulfill the law, and that is the whole problem. The whole problem is that the, the law brings death because no one could fulfill the law. But in Christ, we have life, and Christ is the righteousness that even allows us to fulfill the law. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, These are quotations in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So Moses, he was speaking about how the divine commandment is not far away in an unreachable place like heaven or Hades. Right? It's not like like, like the, the, the divine commandment is unreachable or far away from us. It's not like it is up in heaven, which where we can't reach, or it is in Hades where we can't reach, but it is what present, right? Present with us here. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, right? It is a, um, a practical and attainable life. Like St. Paul is using the same analogy, and he's describing the righteousness of faith as, as not being this like theoretical, unattainable goal, but it is attainable through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, that, 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 that can be achieved, right? It is something that is attainable through the work of the Holy Spirit, but cannot be attained apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Okay, so the beginning of the Christian path, it begins with faith and confession of that faith that Jesus is the Son of God and was resurrected, right? This is the beginning, okay, of the path. The heart believes, so we have a faith that we believe in, and then the mouth confesses. So we have a, a, a faith, a belief, and then we practice that, we declare that, we take action on that. The heart is like the inner life, and the mouth is the outer actions, right? So with the heart, one believes, and then with the mouth, the, con the, the outward action, there is a confession made unto salvation, right? And whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, his faith will not be in vain. So whenever we essentially are, 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 are putting God to the test, in a sense, then saying we are placing our faith in him, we will not be disappointed in the way that he uh, treats us or responds to us. 
St. Augustine he says this. He says, Sometimes we hear someone confessing his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are unable to discern whether he is a believer or an unbeliever. We should not ask anyone to confess the Lord Jesus Christ if he is not a believer with his whole heart, for anyone who confesses in this way is giving words that do not match what is in his heart. Meaning whatever it is that we confess from the outside should be what we truly, really believe um, on the inside. For there is no distinction. Yes. Two. This? Yeah. So verse nine. Maybe I zoned out just now, but that's the verse that like people will quote when it's like, why do you need like works, right? As long as I believe and confess that Christ is the Lord, then I'm saved. And what is our response? Well, our response is that you have to read the whole Bible, (laughs) right? So, so you can take any specific verse and you can have like a very skewed interpretation of that verse, right? Because, um, the 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 point that is trying to be made in any specific verse for any specific audience in any specific context is not claiming to be a comprehensive view of the entire christian faith like there are places for instance where it says that if you believe um and are baptized you will be saved but then there's other places that it says you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, there's some places that mentions faith and other places that mentions faith with baptism. You know, there's some places that the, the focus is so much on works and the other place, like in the epistle of St. James, for instance, and he says, show me your faith by your works and faith without works is dead. There's other places where it's focusing so much on the idea of faith and that all that you, you need is faith and not works and so on. So, you have to you can't just take a verse, right? Like you have to understand what what is the context of that verse. So for instance, when St. Paul is speaking against works, right? He was speaking about the works of the law of the Old Testament which cannot save. And he's addressing this to the Jews. And he's telling them, "Do not be confident in salvation because you have been circumcised or because you, you know, practice certain feasts or because there's certain foods you abstain from or so on." So he he de-emphasized works greatly, but what he meant there was the works of the Old Testament. Um, St. James in his epistle, he emphasizes works greatly. You know, he, he speaks about how just saying that you believe in something is not sufficient, right? You have to actually uh, practice that. You have to demonstrate those works. So if someone does not have a good grasp of all of the scripture, then yes, it's very easy to read a verse like this, uh, you know, and not understand, you know. Um, so So I think if someone brings it, then you should also have other verses that you can point to and say, okay, but let's try to get a holistic view and understanding of what everything is saying. Here he's focusing on this point, but it doesn't mean that he's excluding everything else. Okay? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here he's like getting to the bottom line. He's saying, you Jews, don't be so proud of your heritage or the fact that you are Jewish or your history or your prophets or the law or anything. Because even though you had all those things, 
you still were condemned to death because you were not able to follow any of those things that you're proud of, you know. Um, and then to the Greek, he's saying also don't be proud of the fact that you are not the ones who crucified Christ or thinking that you are exempt from anything or thinking that you are better than the Jews. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So he's saying what all of your historical like all of your history, all of your heritage, all of your past, all of your ancestors, all those things, it doesn't matter, right? That's not the point. Salvation is for each individual based on their faith in Christ and their response to their faith in Christ. Again, the heart believes and the mouth confesses, right? For each individual, okay? So it has nothing to do with your race, you know, your geography, nothing. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, so he's saying forget all of that stuff in the past and let's just focus on the here and now. Don't make distinctions between yourself and with other people. There is no distinction between all of humanity is what he is saying. Because Jew and Greek, that he's, Greek here means Gentile, so it covers all of humanity. All humans are in the same state, regardless of the Old Testament law of circumcision or anything else. We're all sinners in need of salvation, and the Lord's sacrifice atones for all the sins, regardless of our history, okay? But only those who seek forgiveness and transformation will receive it. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not that, well, because my ancestors uh, built a tabernacle, then I am saved. Because um, I am circumcised, that I am saved. None of those things, Okay. It is whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever seeks the salvation, who seeks the forgiveness from God is saved. Um, it, is, it, it is also based on our will, right? It is based on our will. I must take a step and I must choose salvation. Salvation is offered to everyone, but it is not given against our will. And we have to take a step to receive. We have to take a step to um benefit from this salvation that Christ has offered to all of humanity. It is a choice for each of us. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is the um, evangelistic formula for salvation that has caused the church to grow from just a, a very small group of believers um, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost to a worldwide church that is in every single country that all of us are benefiting from even today. Right? This was the formula. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So the, f the first step is belief. You know, I, I first have to believe that God is the author of salvation. I have to believe that I am in need of salvation. I have to believe that, that I am in sin and that God is, is merciful and offering me a solution to this sin. How shall they believe in him they have not heard? Meaning, if, how is it that I can believe in this God if, if I have not heard this message, if I'm not aware of his existence, if I'm not aware of my sin and my corruption and my darkness? How can I believe unless it has been presented to me so that I understand the problem that I'm in and what is the solution, okay? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How is it that I'm going to hear this message, right, this good news message, unless someone preaches it to me? 
and so someone says it to me, and so someone presents it to me, right? So this is the preaching. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Meaning if how, who is going to go and do this work? Who is going to do this service? The church is going to send those who do. The church is going to train and send those people, right? Just like the apostles. This is exactly how the apostles, they were trained. They were sent out. Christ sent them out two by two. And, of course, after the resurrection, they all went out on their own and they preached um, so that this message of salvation. And, and so and then he says here, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, right? Because they bring salvation to the world. So we are called by God as believers to be strong in our faith, to understand what it is that we believe, to practice it, to have the inner conviction and to confess it with our mouth, and also to share that conviction, to share that uh, teaching, um, and to be a good example to the world around us so that they would hear and experience the same message and so that they can also um, be saved and, and believe. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Not everyone who hears will believe, right? There are many people that are preached to that hear the truth and they do not believe it, right? But the only way that faith can happen is by hearing the word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Again, somebody has to preach the word of God. Someone has to listen to that word. And then through this, they will have faith. Um, the quote here uh, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is from Psalm 19. This uh, quote here is actually the liturgical responses that we say for the apostles' fast. Because in the apostles' fast, we are focusing on the work of the apostles for the salvation of the world. And this is what it's saying. Their, their sound like or their voice. Sometimes it's translated their voice. Their voice has gone out to all the earth. Whose voice? The voice of the apostles. And their words to the end of the world. Because they are preaching to the world. And the world is responding in faith and coming to faith because of them. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. These quotes are from Isaiah and Deuteronomy. What does it mean? The word of God came continually to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so here when it says, um, uh, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will, I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Okay, what does this mean? He's saying that the, Jew, the, the, the Jews, though for the longest time they were rejecting God's command and they were disobedient to him, and yet there came this other nation, which is the nation of the Gentiles, that responded in faith, and they became the children of God. And so now it is bringing, it is bringing like the sense of jealousy to the Jews that they were the ones who were the chosen people for so long, and now there's this other group 
that has replaced them as being the chosen people who are who is the church, right? And so they are provoked to jealousy and moved to anger because someone else has taken their place, okay? And he says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Who is that? The, the Gentiles, right? They, they, they were not aware of God. And yet, through the preaching of the apostles, which was he was just talking about, they heard and they believed and they confessed and they became believers, right? Because of that. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me, the Gentiles. But to the Jews, he says what? All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Like he gave them so many opportunities and so many chances. And in the end, he calls them disobedient and contrary because they did not submit, because they did not believe. Chapter 11. Any questions so far? Good. Yes. Uh, so you, you were just speaking about, uh, it, it, well, it was right before what you just last said about the Gentiles uh, uh, regarding preaching. Um, so today, pretty much the whole world has heard of Christ, uh, at least uh, his name, not necessarily everything that's entailed by following him. But uh, they've heard of him because Christ has been preached to, you know, everyone practically. Um, but the people who preach today, uh, many of them don't necessarily follow Christ. Right? Um, they will speak of Christ, but they don't ne then follow him. And so their words come out as meaningless or hypocritical. And so people who hear of Christ now are deterred by him, by, him, by his name. Right? Um, then within the church, at what point... I mean, we, we, we can live, we can preach Christ by our, our actions, obviously, but um, at what point is a person within the church ready to use his words? Or is he, are we always ready? Or like, what is the, like, uh, how should we approach using our words to evangelize if we should? I mean, definitely we should, right? Because, um, but I, I also, I understand what you're saying. You're saying, maybe many people have given Christianity a bad name so that when Christ is preached, people are turned off to the message. Actually, this is what Gandhi said, right? Gandhi said the thing that keeps him from being a Christian is the Christians because he sees their hypocritical actions. So he said, what, I love your Christ, but I hate your Christians. So when he reads about Christ, he loves his message, right? But when he sees the action of Christians, he's turned off to Christianity. Um, and so, of course, this is a great, um, like, this, this is a great, you know, catastrophe. And, you know, I'll, I'll mention something, but without mentioning the name, that there was a very, very famous preacher, very, very famous preacher, worldwide, traveling all over the world. And he was, w I would say, maybe the most educated and successful Christian apologist in my lifetime. And maybe, maybe many of you know who this person is. But then it happened throughout his very long life that it was discovered that he was sexually abusing women. And, and there were people who made accusations against him 
But his organization didn't believe it because the man was had the most impeccable character and reputation and everything about him. Like you looked at him, you're like, there's no way that these allegations could be true. And so his, f his, his, his organization rejected it. But then later it was discovered that it was actually true. And he died um, recently. Uh, and now, like, his whole organization is completely in shambles. If you go to their website, there's, like, nothing there. If you go to their YouTube channel, this man had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of events. There's not a single event of him on their, on his cha on their channel. It's just all the other preachers that are like his associates that they have now on their channel. This man has written books. This man has done so much. Um, and I personally like would listen to him all the time. Um, so I'm not trying to judge him. Any of us can fall into anything. Um, but it shows that so many people who are following him and listening to his words and 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 learning the truth from him which everything he said is the truth i mean the f the things that he did did not take away from the fact that his preaching was the truth but now it's confused like who is this man is he really what i thought he was is are his words really the truth like i thought they were all the people who are maybe trying to learn about the faith through him that that are kind of not very secure in their faith yet when they hear such a thing of course, it's going to be a source of offense. And maybe they're going to turn away. So every time I think about his story, it's so sh such a tragic story. Like, he, he committed his whole life to this service. But because of his weakness and because of his sin that became known, then it kind of undermined his entire life work. So this, is, I think, is an example of what you're describing. And um, it's, it's tragic. And it's a byproduct of the fact that as human beings, we are sinful and we are weak, even while we believe and even while we try to do good. And I'm tr not trying to say anything about like this man's salvation. But all I'm saying is from the perspective of what you said about the preaching, right? Like the preaching of the words has to match our actions. And if, if I'm a person who I maybe am known by others to not live according to um, my faith, then yeah, maybe my preaching is not, maybe it's not the time for me to be preaching now until I can resolve that um, and be a better witness and a better example, and then I can use my words, okay? But of course we are called to use our words, you know? And this is what this is saying. Like even here, in the, in the here when he's saying what their sound has gone out to all the earth or their voice has gone out to all the earth. It was, you know, the apostles did not just go into the world and be good role models. I mean, obviously they were, but that wasn't all that they did. They preached and that's what got them martyred is because of their words, not because of their actions. You know, like if they would have just gone and been kind to everyone and merciful to everyone and generous to everyone and, and lived according to all the virtues of Christ, but never spoke about Christ, they probably wouldn't have been martyred, right? Because the reason they were martyred was because what they preached was contrary to what everyone else believed. And they were causing um, rebellion, you know, because, because of what they were preaching. And so um, definitely we are called to do both, right? We are called to, to preach with our words, and we're called to preach with our actions. Yeah. <coughs>
I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. <clears throat> For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Had God, has, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. For do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So, again, he's going back and speaking, directing this to the Jews again. He's saying, while it is true that the Jews have been rejected, while it is true that they are no longer the people of God, and now all the believers are the people of God, which are now the majority of the Gentiles, and as he was just saying, that, that God says about them that they are a contrary and obstinate people, that they are a disobedient people, and that they have been found by a people who are not looking for him, which are the Gentiles. So then he's saying, so does that mean that now God has totally rejected the Jews and the Jews have no hope of salvation at all? And he's saying, no, this is not what that means. Okay? Um, he compares the situation to Elijah, who at the time of Elijah that there was Baal worship. Baal is a false god. And so many people were turning to worshiping Baal. And Elijah, kind of in his despair, thinking that all of the people has have now turned to the worship of Baal, and all of them are rejected by God. And he fell into despair about this. Um, but God responded to him, and he said, No, there are still 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he's saying here is there are still Jews who are faithful. There are still Jews who will have salvation. There are still Jews who have believed. It is not that the entire nation completely has been cut off. There is a remnant, right? There is a remnant of the faithful. Not everyone has turned to rejecting Christ. There are some who have not. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, uh, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But it is of works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So what is he saying? He's saying salvation is not by the works of the law, as we have said before, because no amount of the works of the law would grant it. No amount of the works of the law could grant salvation because everyone is going to fall short of obeying the law completely and totally as God is asking. So it is by grace. This is, it goes to what I was saying before about how St. Paul can speak against the concept of works. Right Here he's saying it is by grace and not by works. So someone might read this and might interpret it to mean, well, God doesn't care about any works. All It's 100% by grace. It's only by grace. No works required. Nothing to do with works. But again, look, understand the concept here. What works is he talking about? He's talking about the works of the Old Testament. He's talking about the, the Mosaic Law. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about those things. This entire book is focusing on these points because this was the controversy that was there at the time between the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, So he's saying, do not boast in your works. Do not boast because you are circumcised. Do not boast in those things because there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Those things are not granting you salvation. What's granting you salvation is the grace of God. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Okay, Those elected 
which are the ones who have been chosen by Christ, have obtained salvation. But the rest that rejected him were blinded. Okay? So the elect, remember when we use the word elect, it says the elect are the ones he foreknew. So the elect are the ones that chose him and that he knew beforehand that they would choose him. Those are the elect. Okay? So Israel, as in the Jewish Israel, has not obtained what it seeks. Okay? But the elect, which are all the people that believe in Christ, whether they are Jewish or whether they are Gentiles, okay, have obtained it. They have obtained salvation because of their faith. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Okay. Because those people who rejected Christ chose to close their eyes and reject the truth of the gospel, they did not become enlightened. They did not have a deeper understanding of the spiritual things. They did not understand what is it that Christ actually came to offer them because they did not believe in his words. They did not trust in what he had to say. There is a difference between being ignorant of the truth and clinging to a lie. Those are not the same things. It's possible that there are people who are ignorant. Obviously, anyone is ignorant until they have been enlightened. Okay? So those people, even who believed in Christ, were ignorant until he came and he taught them the truth. The difference is that they were willing to listen and to receive it with an open mind and an open heart so the, so the Spirit of God worked in them so that they would be convicted of the truth and they would follow through with that truth. On, an example of this is Cornelius. Cornelius, who was a Gentile who was baptized, um, an angel appeared to him and praised him for the life that he was living um, and said that he was worthy of salvation. So he was ignorant of the truth because he did not understand. He didn't understand what Christ had done or, or who he was or any of that. But he was doing all that he could to live as a good person. And so he was deemed worthy uh, of salvation by God, right? He was, and so then he received enlightenment to understand, okay? The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were also ignorant of the truth. But they, when the truth came... Because of their wrong motives, they clung to the lie and they rejected the light that Christ wanted to give them. So Christ shines light. You know, it's kind of like um, we could all be in this room, which is very bright, but some of us could have our eyes closed. So, so if our eyes are closed, it doesn't matter how bright the room is, we are still seeing darkness, right? So prior to Christ, the room was dark. And so whether you had your eyes open or your eyes closed, it didn't matter because it was darkness everywhere. But when Christ came and he offered the light, we either choose to keep our eyes closed and reject the light, or we open our eyes and we are enlightened by it. So having these people who rejected Christ, um, it's he's saying here, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back. Right? They have become spiritually weak. They have become spiritually disabled. They have become completely like lying to themselves, not wanting to accept the truth because of 
their own preconceived ideas and because they, you know, specifically the Pharisees, they wanted power, they wanted authority, they refused to give that up, they refused to acknowledge who Christ was, and so they rejected everything that he had to say. They were not, um, they did not discern the truth and what he was saying. I say then, have they stumbled that they, that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, so what is he saying? Again, he's looking at these two groups, okay, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, they rejected Christ and thereby made a place for now the Gentiles to take their place. The Jews were the original people of God. They rejected God. The Gentiles now have been accepted by God and offered salvation to become the children of God, to take the place of the Jews. Okay, Having seen the faith of the Gentiles, the Jews should now be moved with jealousy because the Gentiles have taken their place as the children of God. But the door is still open for the Jews to return. And the Gentiles should welcome this. Right, like the Gentiles should not have some kind of competition or enmity with the Jews. The, the the Gentiles should desire and want the Jews to come to the faith and to receive the blessings that the Gentiles themselves have received. Then he says, "What if the falling of the Jews led to the salvation of the Gentiles? How much more blessed would the Gentiles be if the Jews return again?" He's saying the reason the Gentiles have the place that they're in, it happened at the, at, like the, 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 because the Jews rejected Christ. The Jews are the ones who rejected Christ. The Jews are the ones who uh, crucified Christ, which brought salvation to the Gentiles and to the Jews who believed in him. But the majority were the Gentiles. So he's saying if the disobedience of the Jews, if the fall of the Jews led to the whole world being able to be reconciled to God, how much more would happen if the Jews themselves also accepted the faith. He says what? Their acceptance would be like life from the dead. You know? If if their being cast away, the Jews being cast away, caused the reconciling of the world to God, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Like a far greater even result. So he's saying to the Jews, to the Gentiles, don't be haughty and prideful against the Jews or thinking yourself better than the Jews. You know, number one, what the Jews, what happened with the Jews led to your salvation and how much more benefit would you have if also the Jews um, came to the faith? This is what St. John Chrysostom says. Here he speaks in order to honor them. For if by their stumbling many have come to enjoy salvation, them here is the Jews. Here he speaks in order to honor the Jews. For if by their stumbling many have come to enjoy salvation, and if by their rejection many have become invited, then how much better would the conditions be when they would return? Right? So he's saying, look for the restoration of the Jews. They are not your enemies. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. 
And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, what is the first fruit and what is the root in these two? You're making two analogies here. What is the first fruit? And what is the lump? The first fruit is not Abraham specifically, but bigger than that. The Jews. Why are they the first fruit? Because they were the first chosen people by God. Okay, so what is the lump? Yeah, yeah, everyone, right? So he's saying, like, if you t- if you have like a piece of dough, okay, so lump is referring to like a lump of like dough. So if you have like a, a lump of dough, okay, and you have like a small piece of dough over here, and this small piece of dough is like has yeast in it, okay, when you take this small piece of dough and you mix it in with the whole piece of dough and you knead it all together now the yeast is in the whole dough right so if one small part of the dough is holy and when you mix it in with the whole dough then the whole dough becomes holy and use the same example again with like a plant saying if the root what what is the root the hmm? the Jews again right it's the same analogy if the root is holy if the original part is holy, so are the branches that grows out of the root. So St. Paul is saying that the Gentiles are an outgrowth of the Jews. Okay, that's what he is saying. They are an outgrowth. They, the, the Jews came first and the Gentiles came after them. Okay, then he goes on. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay? So he's saying if some of these branches, if some of part of this plant were broken off, okay? Again, these branches that are broken off represent the Jews who rejected Christ. Okay? Um, and you, being a wild olive tree, you're wild in the sense that you are, you are not part of this natural plant. You're coming from somewhere else, okay? And you've been grafted into this plant, and now you are partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree, okay? Do not boast against the branches who are broken off. Why? Because remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. The Gentiles should not boast against the Jews. The root of the plant, right, is everything that God has done with the Jews from the beginning all the way up until that time. And all of that was for the benefit of the whole world, the salvation of the whole world. So we don't look at the Jews and we'd be like, you know, lorded against them and saying, oh, we're better than you. No, actually, everything that they experienced through their whole history is what led you to actually to have faith is what led you to be in the faith. The faith of the Gentiles is based and built on what God had done throughout history with the Jews. Yes. Question. Mm. Okay. Um, Can you go back one? So that last part of not boasting against the root because you came from the root or you're being supported Supported. by the root. Sure. Um. So I guess I I read that a different way of like we should know 
like where we come from and like our church history and stuff because we can't just assume that we like this is it right or no is that a wrong way to also see that I didn't really complete a thought there but (laughs) (laughs) just like because I feel like like for me I don't know my church history at all right so I'm kind of a branch that got in and then it's like what roots right um but how do you like at some point like he's talking to Gentiles who are just now being joined in we're all Gentiles right so how do we maintain that like not boasting against the root yeah I mean I agree with you um the the in, in, a, in a general context the root is everything that came before you all the people that sacrificed all the people who you know gave us the example and who taught us so that we could have the blessings that we have today which goes back to the comment I made before about um, like the people who are in a church knowing the truth and not just blindly following the leaders and being accountable to the truth is that anyone who tries to understand this this history is going to come to certain conclusions about what is the true Christianity and where did it come from and and so on so 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 definitely like you know like all the Jews for instance who's the one who wrote the Old Testament it was the Jews who are all the people who responded in faith the Jews Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the all those patriarchs like all the all the, the heroes of faith from the Old Testament they were Jews right the law came through a Jew Moses Who's the one who parted the Red Sea? It was God, obviously, but working through Moses. Like, So at no point should the Gentiles look and say, you know what, Pfft, none of that is important. So it's, it's what you're saying, except you know, we are trying to apply that now, um, which includes the last 2,000 years um, of history as well. Like everything that all the people that were faithful, that preserved the faith, that passed it down, that taught it to us, all of these are the root for us. So you're right. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. So he's speaking to the Gentiles, right? He's saying, you might say the branches, the Jews, were broken off that I the Gentile wild olive tree branch might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Right? He's saying to the Jew, to the Gentiles, do not be prideful. Because if the natural branches, the branches that grew as a part of this plant from the very beginning, if God was willing to break off those branches because of their disobedience and their lack of faith, then how? Then, then it would be just as easy that if you also fall away from the faith, that you would be broken off as well. Right? So this is a message to all of us. No one of us should think to themselves, well, because I'm in the church or because I grew up in the church or because I go to the church or because of something, something, right, that somehow I'm immune from fall or I'm immune from judgment because I've always been a part of the plant. Just because I've always been part of the plant 
doesn't say anything about the future. You know, there were people who were always part of the plan. Judas, I mean, he was, he was there from the beginning, okay? And he, we know his outcome. He probably did not expect that to happen from the beginning. This is why we should always be careful. This is why in the church, uh, maybe sometimes people see that the way we do things is like ultra-conservative in some things, you know? And maybe people grumble about that or grumble with their fathers of confession because they tell them to be extra careful and extra strict. It's because of this. It's because the devil is super, super creative at destroying us. I go back to that preacher man that I was talking about before. You know, again, like an entire lifetime of his service is like been like warped and confused and, 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 to some extent, made of no effect because of the deception of the enemy. And the deception of the enemy happens very slowly, very gradually. The devil is extremely patient, right? So that we don't even detect or realize that this, that this is happening, that we are going astray. That's why we have to be very careful in the way that we live, in what we allow ourselves to listen to, and what we allow ourselves to see, and who we allow ourselves to be with, and so many things. We have to be careful because we are not stronger than him. We are not more clever than him, right? It is by the grace of God that we stand, not because of our own strength or cleverness. If God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. This is what he said to the Gentiles, which is the entire church, right? When we say the Gentiles, this is the church. He's saying to the church, if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And this is a clear, clear message against the doctrine of eternal security, which some Protestant churches believe. Right? This message that um, once saved, always saved. You know, once you become a Christian, then no matter what, you will have salvation. How do you explain this? If God did not spare the natural branches, he would not spare you either. And he's speaking to people who are the branches now, right? He's saying, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, meaning, yes, you are branches, and you have been grafted in, and you are a part of the plant, right? But then he says, well, why is it that the others were broken? They were broken because of their lack of faith, because of their disobedience. They were broken off. And the reason you are in is because of your faith. So if you depart from faith, if you live in disobedience to God, if you do not repent, then you also will be broken. That's exactly what he's saying. So we should not feel this sense of immunity. No, we should feel seriousness, right? When we say, you know, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, this is a seriousness. This is not intended to make us in terror. This is not, this is not, there's a difference between saying, that we should be serious or being in terror, right? Terror is that I, I have this feeling that no matter what happens, I'm going to hell. This is terror. And this is sadly what some people believe, okay? That no, that no matter what, that at this very moment, even though I attend Bible studies and even though I pray and even though I take communion and even though I confess my sins, but no matter what I do, I'm going to go to hell. That's terror and that's not right, Okay? But seriousness is, I'm not going to just allow myself to live according to the desires of my flesh or according to how the world wants me to live without repentance, without 
effort, without struggle, without, you know, like like completely letting my guard down in every way, kind of in a very lackadaisical way without caring at all, carefree, you know, that is not fear and trembling, right? So w- we are called to, you know, to, 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 to be careful because we can easily f- fall. And this is very interesting. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God in the same sentence. You know, back to the idea of maybe we have zeal without knowledge. There are some people who make such an argument, and they say, because God is so good and merciful, and there is no one as merciful as he is, and there is no one as good as he is, and there is no one who would sacrifice himself for us as he has done, and because of his great love for us, then God would never allow someone to suffer eternally in hell. And so they conclude, based on this understanding, based on this logic, that that means that hell must be either doesn't exist, or it's temporary, or it's something beyond maybe what the traditional understanding of hell is in the church, but it can't be what the church teaches that hell is because that would mean that God is not merciful. That is a human philosophy or a human understanding. And I would say that it's a zeal without knowledge because this is contrary to what God has said in the scripture. And here it makes it clear that God is both good and severe. Right? He's both good and severe. Does it again? This is I'm not trying to say this so that we would be living in fear of fear of God. But he says what? On those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So those people who are currently away, they can be grafted in, and you people who are already in might be broken off, right? So you don't know. Don't judge another. Just focus on yourself. Just focus on yourself and ask God for his mercy, ask God for his protection. And we believe that God will protect us. And we believe that God is merciful to us, right? We don't have to live in fear of the future because we know God has conquered the devil and because we know that God wants our salvation, right? He desires to give us the kingdom of God. But to us, we have to tell ourselves, but don't take, you know, give ourselves a license for sin to live willfully in sin, knowing that we are in sin, knowing that the, the, the path we are going is a path of destruction and without any repentance, and we excuse ourselves by saying, yes, but God is good. God is good. Yes, but he's also severe, right? This is what this verse is saying. He's both good and severe. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So he's saying, if you Gentiles who were wild, who were like part of another wild tree, were cut from that tree and grafted into this um, cultivated olive tree, which is representing the church, how much more will these who are the natural branches who had been cut off, the Jews who had been cut off because they rejected Christ, 
be able to be grafted back again into their own olive tree, right? So again, don't boast against them, right? They are eligible for salvation. They were here before you, and so they can come back again. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, Israel is blind in part because some have accepted and some have rejected. Right, That's why he's saying that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Some of the Jews have accepted Christ, some have rejected Christ. And St. John Chrysostom says, part of the Jewish people have been blinded, but not all, for many of them already have believed in Christ. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay. St. Cyril, in, in now first, before I read what he says, St. Paul says that you should not be ignorant of this mystery. What he is about to say is a mystery. Okay, how do we understand it? St. Cyril believes that this means that eventually the Jews will be saved. That's what he said. He says this, although it was rejected, Israel will also be saved eventually. A hope which Paul confirms by quoting this text of scripture. For indeed, Israel will be saved in its own time and will be called at the end after the calling of the Gentiles. So St. Cyril is expressing this belief that he will that that what what St. Paul is saying here is that even though the Jews had been rejected at the time, but there will be a there will come a time of their repentance and there will come a time of their salvation. Okay, that's what St. Cyril says. St. Augustine, he says that the word Israel here, when it says, and so all Israel will be saved, okay, is not referring to the historic Jewish Israel, because many times the word Israel in Scripture is used to refer to the church as the new people of God. Just like in the Old Testament, Israel were the people of God. In the New Testament, Israel is the church, which are all the people of God. So St. Augustine, he interprets this, that the word Israel is referring to the elect. And this is what he says. Not all the Jews were blind, some of them recognizing Christ. But the fullness of the Gentiles comes in among those who have been called according to the plan. And there arises a truer Israel of God, the elect, from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so in this sense, this promise of the covenant, this promise of the taking away of sins and the turning from ungodliness and all of this is referring to the church who are the elect, who are the people of God in the New Testament. So those are two different views. Con so the question is, is, does our church lean to one or the other? There are people who believe that the Jews are going to be saved. And some people go as far as to say this, that there will be a time where um, the Jews will rebuild the temple of Solomon, which is in Israel, and they are going to try to offer sacrifice as they had done in the past, expecting that fire would come from heaven and consume the sacrifice. Um, but then fire would not come, and they would realize that that's because the sacrifice has already come, who is the Messiah, and then they will believe. 
Now, some people say that. I can't say that that is an accepted view of the church as a whole. Um, so, as far as my understanding, um, there's just different people with different opinions. Um, I, I think many people do not believe that this necessarily means that the Jews are going to be saved. Again, because the term Israel very, very often is used to refer to the church. Yes. So I, I'd actually had a question that I wanted to ask in the beginning, but throughout the course it's been s somewhat touched on. We got back to it again. Um, related to this point um, about the salvation of the Jews, um, but also of pretty much uh, any religious sect outside of, of the church. Um, I, I, was, uh, I had a friend, he and I discussed about this, and as you pointed out, he's essentially a universalist. He thinks that everyone will be saved, right? Um, but uh, I think a point that I came to conclude through our conversation is, we, we, in the church we say that everyone, everybody, um, our desires, um, the things that we call sinful, um, those those are distorted uh, or disorientations of of our natural inclination to Christ, right? It's it's us looking in the wrong way and like all the, the passions that we have, but all of those find fulfillment in Christ. And so, in the same way, these different uh, doctrines, these different religions, um, denominations, etc., uh, they 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 will be distorted in, under, in their understanding. And yet, they, Christ, Christ fulfills what it is that they're looking for. I mean, I guess that's obvious, but it, it say with the Jews. The Jews have been, I mean, the, uh, those that we call Jews today, uh, they've been preserving this set of traditions since, well, the mid-first century. Um, whatever is contained there, it still speaks of a Messiah, one that they seek, right? When a Jew who adheres to that, well, when a modern Jew uh, comes to know of Christ, especially through the Orthodox faith, I mean, like, they'll see that their religion that they've been seeking, af that they've been following after, it's been missing this giant piece, and Christ is that piece. And doesn't mean that, they're, that they continue to follow the religion because that tradition is essentially dead, and that tradition has only been continuing through the church. Right, uh, the, the tradition, um, it begins with the Jews, but then uh, it goes to the ancient Assyrians, the Egyptians, etc. That, that tradition, they can only go to that church to be able to, it, it, they can't just continue on their own, right? I mean, is that concept correct? That's what I wanted to ask. It's what I've been thinking about. The concept that... Um that all religions have some truth? Or what's the, which concept specifically? That they all have some truth, but, but Christ fulfills that, that missing piece, I guess. And so you can, appeal to, you can appeal to people of different religions in that way. I've so been practicing that. So I mean, what I, what I would say is that Christ fulfills all that is lacking in the human being. Right? Yeah. Christ fulfills every need that we know about and don't know about in the human being. So that even people who 
you know, maybe are living in sadness and depression and don't even understand why. Maybe it's because Christ is not present in their life. And so there is no way to, there's no way for them to recognize that. They don't know what it is that they're lacking. You know, kind of like a, a person who is eating food with poison in it without realizing that it's poison. And they don't know why they're sick, you know. So, so I in that sense, yes, Christ solves all of the needs of every person. And religions, different religions are, the man-made man religions are, are a way that human beings try to fulfill the needs that they have, right? That's, 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 that's how religions come about. They, they come about because someone or a group of people want to see the world in a certain way or are convinced that the world is a certain way, but highly influenced by the, their own desires and the way they want the world to be. And so they, they interpret it in such a way that kind of like, in a way that they try to fulfill what is lacking in them. So in that sense, yes. Um, I mean, I don't disagree with what you said. But of course, there are many religions that are so different than the, the the true Christ, like Christ, that there are very few things. I mean, there's always some things, but there's very few things, you know, that that are in common. Like for Judaism, it's the closest religion to Christianity, you know, and and we even share scripture together, and we share a lot of history together, and Christianity is the, like the fulfillment of Judaism. So there is a very strong connection between the two, right? And so. And like you said, they're explicitly waiting for the Messiah. And once they realize that the Messiah is the one who came, then they would accept Christianity, right? So it's like that one point is the point that, that is missing for them. But many other religions um, are far, far deviated more and more in their worldview. Like, you know, like some people believe that the universe is deity, you know, or that animals are divine or reincarnation or um, you know all kinds of systems right that when you and, and, and even that include Christ like Hinduism for instance like you can worship Christ as a Hindu in the Hindu religion because you can choose different gods to to worship Christ is one of them so they took Christ as a God and incorporated him but in a in a in a, in a twisted way into their religion right so the further and further you go from the Christian worldview, the harder it is for people to identify, okay, wh who is Christ? What are we really saying about him? And how does he come and, and replace what is it that I believe and how easy is it for someone to accept that? See what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, um, I only read the first paragraph of this, of this book, but... St. Gregory of Nazianzus, his catechetical discourse. I think he, uh, it's, it's, it's in St. Paul's too. Yeah, St. Paul says this too, I think, uh, that p people of um, wherever they may be coming from, that you meet them where they are, right? Even in, in terms of their re religion and whatnot. But as you said, it, you know, some, it, it requires you to go a bit further to be able to speak to them. Um, but yeah, th yeah. Th there will always be some truth in all religions because there is some because we are all made in the image of Christ whether we believe in him or not so there's always going to be something that we all have in us 
that is reflected in in what we actually believe without even realizing where it's coming from. But there will always be some truth in everything, you know, even if a lot of it is lies or false. Um, like I was telling you before, I, I, I talk to Muslims now, and every time I do, I just get excited because it's like the Syriac church, the Coptic church, this is where they're supposed to be. And, and as I explain it to them, they themselves seem interested, right? Because they're like, oh, I didn't he I've never heard about this sort of Christianity. And it's so similar to theirs. And then I suppose at some point it, it gets to the conversation. I, I, and Abuna told me one of the issues with Islam is they never uh, address the, uh, the problem of human nature properly, that, like finding healing for it. But that Christ does, he fulfills that. And perhaps you get to that point and, you know, it's, it's uh, epiphanic for them, you know. This is what I've been missing all this time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, um, almost done. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay, what does this mean? St. John Chrysostom, he said, when the Gentiles believed the Jews became even more obnoxious, obnoxious to them. But even now, God has not stopped calling the Gentiles. He is waiting for all of them who are to believe to come in, and then the, the rest of the Jews will come as well. This is what St. John Chrysostom is saying. So he's saying concerning the gospel, they're enemies in the sense that they don't believe in the gospel. The Jews, they don't believe in the gospel. Okay, But again, like here, St. John Chrysostom is interpreting this to mean that Concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, meaning that they are like they they are, they are still going to come in at some point. Okay. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The Gentiles lived in disobedience for a long time, and yet they obtained mercy and faith. And so, even though many Jews have disobeyed and rejected Christ, they are able to still return because God can also show mercy on them. So just as the Gentiles lived far from God for a long time, God accepted them. So also the Jews can live far from God and ultimately be accepted again. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who was first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. No one knows the will of God. No one knows the future. No one understands how God is working out the salvation of all of humanity throughout time. Um, and so it is, again, like St. Paul said, it is a mystery, and it is unsearchable. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any final comments or questions? Yes. St. Paul tends to cite scripture a lot whenever he is writing to the Jews. But, like, I think in this chapter alone, he cited scripture maybe four times, even though it's to the Romans. So, like, I don't know. Do you have any, like, 
comments about like his particular style of writing, at least as far as this. So this book is written to both the Jews and to the Gentiles, both, because Rome had a mixture of both. So his audience here is both. That's why actually, the at this point, like now he's like directly addressing the Gentiles, but I would say the majority of the book that we've read so far, he's been addressing the Jews. So uh, all the scripture uh, references, you're right, that those make sense in the context of the Jews because they uh, believe in the Old Testament and to them that's a clear um, source of authority. But even the Gentiles that he's writing to here, he's writing to the Gentiles that are already in the faith as opposed to writing to the Gentiles that are not. So for instance, when he speaks to the Gentiles that are not in the faith, like for instance in the um, Areopagus, when he's speaking to like these Athenian Greek philosophers, he doesn't mention anything about the scripture. Actually, he brings their own poetry. He brings like the the tomb of or, or the the mem like the the memorial of the unknown god, like th like those things that are in their culture and their religion and so on. And he doesn't mention um, the scripture, but here he is speaking to Jews. A lot of it is addressing the Jews. And the Gentiles are those who are already in the faith, so they, they presumably already believe in the scripture as well. Because remember, at this time, there's no Bible, right? So if, if you were a Christian, a Gentile Christian, at this period of time, what is it that you would read? Like, what would be the reading material um, that has the description of your faith? Well, it's the Old Testament, and then um, the, the letters that the apostles are writing um, to one another, which are going to be much harder to get a hold of because um, the, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures would have been much more available at the time than the epistles that are being circulated amongst the churches that the apostles are writing. So really the, the core scriptures at this time that any Christian would be reading, whether uh, Jew or Gentile, would be the Old Testament scriptures. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your resurrection and all the sacrifice that you made for our sake in order to restore us, O Lord, from darkness and eternal death. We thank you, O God, for your mercy and goodness. Help us, O God, to see your grace working in our lives and to know, O Lord, that our salvation is only through your mercy and not through anything that we could do. We thank you, O Lord, for your kindness and goodness. We thank you, O God, because you are a forgiver of our sins and have mercy on us and that even though, O Lord, we walk in so many ways in falling and making mistakes and yet you call us again to repentance and you restore us again and you lead us on the right path. We thank you, O oh God, for all the messages of salvation that you give to us, and we thank you for the church and how you have offered her to us for our salvation. Help us, O oh Lord, to, leave a life, to le lead a life of faith and to strengthen us, O oh God, that we would live in the world that is around us, that is attracting us to sin, and yet we would turn away from it and we would be always restored to you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here as we pray thankfully, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.